Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We have another awesome episode for y'all today. I know that I have been accused of saying it before, but I legitimately believe that this is the best podcast that we have done thus far. It is our fourth guest episode with our guest, Charles McBride who is a very smart, uh, driven, and talented young man. He's working on a wide variety of different things, and we covered a wide gambit of different topics, all the way from uh, the nonprofit that he works for uh, called FarmLink that uh, connects a lot of farms and helps to reduce a lot of food waste across America. Uh, he's actively involved in that as well. And then we moved on to a lot of other different topics, some of them political, some not so political. Uh, but he brought a lot of really good insights. We had a lot of really really, really great conversations. And I'm very much looking forward to all of y'all listening to it, giving me your feedback and letting me know what you think as well. I hope that all of y'all enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed this conversation. Um, so without further ado, this is our fourth guest episode with Charles McBride. We are live and we're ready to go. Cool. Charles, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, I'm so excited. It's uh, I, I'm, I'm upset that we didn't get a touch base when I was in South Carolina, but this is the next best thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were trying to get you on for like a couple of weeks and then it all just, it was like schedules were conflicting and now you're out in California, right? You're out in LA? I am. Yeah. I, I'm from Columbia though, originally. And I I don't. I didn't live there when I was living back in South Carolina, but I passed through there fairly frequently. Um, it just, it just never seemed to work out when I was going through. So, gotcha. Did you go to USC as well? I did. Yeah. Okay. I went to USC. Cool. The real awesome. USC. People out here think that that means California. Right. That is that is the fake USC through and through. I am also Gamecock, right. and I'll rep that. I'll rep that proudly. <laughs> Good deal. We, so, uh, we were a school before. Uh, we were a school before they were a state. So if anybody ever tells you differently, just tell right. them that. That's a fact. As a one hundred percent a fact. <laughs> so <laughs> what brought you out to California? What are you doing in LA? To be honest, um, I just kind of needed to turn the page. I had been on the East Coast for a long time. I spent uh, most of my life in South Carolina, and then spent the last three years in DC. Um, except for 2020, I came back to South Carolina for quarantine and, um, I was honestly just a little bit done with the East coast and yeah. I figured I had a lot of flexibility for the first time in a very long time. And if I wanted to make a, a new start, this would be the time and the place to do it. Um, Los Angeles, I think is, it confuses people because it doesn't feel like my brand, <laughs> but, um, I have some really dear friends, uh, out here and I'm looking forward to kind of making new connections and finding a job I really like. Um, yeah, and that's important. The organization, the charity that I currently work for is, is a lot of people are based out here. So I kind of have a automatic network as soon as I showed up, which is really nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that and that's the perfect segue into it. What, what is that? What all do you do for them? Okay, yeah. So the FarmLink project is a it's an organization that solves a supply chain hang up where basically on the one hand you have massive food insecurity in the United States. We have one in five 
children are going to bed hungry every night uh, and one in five people are experiencing food insecurity. And then you have 40% of our food being wasted every single year. Uh, America mm -hmm. wastes more food than any other country. We produce a lot of food, but that comes with a lot of waste. So what FarmLink does is it finds excess produce that's going to waste at farms and at delivery sites and rejected produce, and we transport it to food banks that need it. So we connect food waste with food insecurity and try to solve both those problems at once. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it started right when COVID happened uh, a couple weeks later. Uh, my friends James and Aiden just rented a truck because they read this article in the New York Times about people, you know, plowing under hundreds of hundreds of thousands of pounds of potatoes. And so they just rented a truck and delivered a, a bunch of potatoes to a food bank in California. And that's kind of how it started. And now we're like several hundred volunteers strewn across, you know, dozens of states. And yeah. um, we're about to hit 30 million pounds of rescue produce delivered to people who need it. So it's very exciting. That is that is awesome. And that is work that, I mean, needs to be done. And it, it's amazing to think about the fact that, like, we are living in, honestly, the, one of the wealthiest countries that has ever, nations that has ever been, you know, created in the history of the world. And we the, the absolutely, wealthiest, yeah. right, right. And we are, we are, we have so much surplus always. There's always surplus for absolutely everything. And yet there are, is such a significant problem with poverty. There's such a significant problem with hunger. And a lot of it, it's amazing that it can be as a result of literally just a supply chain that like there's just a disconnect between people either on farms or in restaurants or at food banks. And like, there's a huge problem with waste and like restaurants throw out their waste every single day instead of, mm -hmm. you know, there's, I've heard of a couple other charities as well that are help with like linking restaurants with food banks and stuff as well, or homeless shelters. Um, yeah. but it really is amazing that like, I can't like we, I, how can there be this much waste and yet so many people that are going hungry? Well, it's a, it's a direct result of policy. Um, right. in many ways we used to, we used to, um, you know, supply food to meet the demand, um, and but the cost wouldn't be really managed. But then, kind of in the 1960s and 70s, we decided to shift our agriculture policy towards overproduction, so that we could drive down prices and make it more accessible for people. With the end result being, um, you know, we waste 40% of our produce, and we're paying farmers to 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 grow crops that nobody's going to eat. Um, right. And so there's, there's a whole host of, of regulation that either needs to happen or needs to be repealed and rolled back in order for us to have like a fun functioning agriculture system. Because yeah, it is, it's completely shameful that the richest um, country in the world has, you know, one out of every five kids going to bed hungry. And that's in addition to not having a functioning healthcare system and not right. having a large social safety net. So um one of the things that we realized very early on is that we can try and, and plug this supply chain gap, but without really addressing the underlying policy concerns and regulation concerns, then it's going to be, we're going to be a drop in the bucket compared to what needs to be done on this product. I mean, on this, um, on this problem. 
Right, right. So what do you think would be specific things policy-wise that would be able to like help bridge that gap better? Is it just limiting the amount of food that farmers can grow? Is it just uh, limiting the funding that farmers could get, not subsidizing farmers in specific ways? Like what, what do you think is the best way to slow that down? Well, I mean, every problem is more complex and more nuanced than, than we'd like to think. And right. there are a million ways that we can you know, go after farm subsidies um, and try and tackle that problem. And there's a lot of much more intelligent people than me and my team who've been looking into those sorts of things. And um, one of the things that my team does best is lift up other organizations and other people. Um, and so if, it, if there's someone who's better at what we're doing or at, or at something that we want to do, we're going to lift them up and bring them into the spotlight rather than trying mm-hmm. to hog that for ourselves because right. the entire project is based off of collaboration. Um, but there are, I mean, there are a number of things. So one thing that, that, that hops to mind is the way that we, the, the FDA regulates when like sell by dates and that sort of stuff. A mm. lot of the waste comes from food that is still good being like, for instance, it is illegal in many instances for a restaurant to get rid of, to, to give its food, its excess food to a food bank right? because right. of these FDA restrictions. So the way that we're trying to solve that is by trying to find a balance a policy policy wise between you know, well, how could we save some more of this food and how do we prevent like a salmonella outbreak? <laughs> um, right. Or, you know, one neither bad, of those are one, good, right. especially yeah. not or in a food bank, of, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't want one bad batch of romaine lettuce showing up and, you know, suddenly all of Compton is, you know, right. salmonella poisoning or whatever. Right. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not actually sure that you get salmonella from lettuce, but anyway. Honestly, your guess um, is as good as mine. There we go. I'll, <laughs> I do I'll, know there I'll was just... like something with romaine lettuce like last year. Yeah. Where a bunch I of it had e. like E. coli. Yeah. 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 Either so I way, you, I think E. Gets, coli I think or sal- salmonella. That's right. I think you get salmonella from like toads and stuff, but whatever. I'm going to say it confidently and, and, <laughs> and people will just ignore it. So, yeah, I mean, we have a policy team that we're setting up. Um, and hopefully we would love to be able to, you know, help create policy around food waste, whether through this organization or through other organizations. As a 501c3, it's difficult for us to lobby um, yeah. and advocate for specific policy proposals or specific political agendas. But there are some things that we can do. And we can also set up other organizations that are or work with other organizations that are already doing that. Um, right. And that's the coolest thing is the entire project is basically just a connector. Um, We find relationships and we cultivate those and people who are already doing good things. We, we bring that to the forefront. Right. Try to plug everybody in. Yeah. And it's interesting. So I work, um, I've, I work currently in my day job is I wish it was podcasting all the time, but uh, unfortunately that's not what I do all day. (laughs) Uh, But I work for uh, a farm. I work in farm credit. So I work in agriculture. And, wow. um, I'm on the, uh, I'm on the finance side of it. So everything that I'm looking at is all, uh, very marketing and market centric. Um, and the farm credit system that has been created in order to be able to kind of like fund the underside of agriculture is actually extremely interesting. And it's very, it's got a long history that goes back to the early 1900s. Um, but the, the most interesting thing is when you look at the farming system and the structure of our, the entirety of the agriculture system in the United States is, 
the vast majority of the farms that we have are actually smaller farms, much smaller farms with older people on them. Um, I mean, the standard farmer is a 55-year-old white right-handed male, right? That is just what almost every single farmer looks like. And for the most part, most of those farmers are struggling to to make ends in in terms of struggling to turn a profit every single year. And yeah. you, the vast majority of the, of the food that is going into a Walmart or going into a Lowe's grocer or wherever else that it might be, oftentimes ends up coming from a really, really large ag producer. Um, and they have, you know, the idea of letting 10,000 pounds of potatoes go to waste. Of course, that's not good. And it touches their bottom line a little bit. But if, if you're, you know, farming half a million acres in Idaho or, you know, 200,000 acres or something up in Idaho and you're growing potatoes, like, you're not thinking about 10,000 pounds, right? Like, it's not that big of a deal. And so shifting, I think that, I think that there's even, in terms of a policy standpoint, there's even a way to, I think that you could shift some of the, even the farm credit system a bit to be able to help promote uh, some of the ways that farmers in an agriculture actually lended to so that they're maybe yeah. even have incentives around, you know, if you're able to save or get, donate a certain amount of the crop that you've gotten, then maybe you get a point off of an interest rate or, you know, that, obviously that's totally spitballing ideas, but, um, no, that's but actually sure something our, yeah, our tax team is actually working on that very thing. Um, right mm-hmm. now, both for the small farms and for the ag producers, um, you know, you always, Unfortunately, a lot of times we have to incentivize um, goodwill, <laughs> right. and that's one way that's you can almost, do it. Another it is, goes. yeah, we're developing a carbon credit system um, because hmm. we're ultimately trying to be our our major goal is sustainability and scalability. We want to make sure that we can continue to grow at just the massive pace that we've been growing, but also do so in a way that's not just ridiculously increasing our carbon footprint. Um, right. And so, yeah, that's a, that's something that's in the works right now. And that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So like when you say reducing your carbon footprint, do you mean that specifically in like, we're not going to use paper or do you mean that in like other ways in relation to like how you guys communicate with and transfer food back and forth? Cause you said you were using right. like a lot of trucks or something. Yeah. So we've got a, you know, it's kind of a, we're coordinating a massive uh, transportation infrastructure all around the country. And trying to do that in a efficient and sustainable way is difficult, um, but it's something that we're just starting to master. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And that's tough to do. That is, that is very difficult to do. But, I mean, so, all right, this is totally off topic completely, but what do you think about, like, Tesla electric vehicles? Like, do you think that that's the future of reducing carbon footprint in terms of transportation? Well, you know, it's funny. I, mean, I know I was the first one to bring out the phrase carbon footprint, but... Uh, that phrase and that concept was actually invented by British Petroleum in order to make mm. people individualize the responsibility for and the effects of climate change. Um, and so that they didn't go calling at the, the big oil and coal and natural gas right. companies and ask why they were responsible. If you feel guilty yourself and you feel better about yourself by you know putting your cans in a certain um in a certain bag and, you know, not using drinking from a plastic straw, then you can both feel better about yourself and not be thinking about who the real causes of the problem are. Because right, the right. truth is that it's about 100 companies um, that are responsible for 70% of pollution 
um, that is that's leading to climate change. So I think that's that's one thing. Whenever you're having a conversation about carbon footprints and stuff, I think you have to realize it's a phrase directly um, invented by the fossil fuel industry in order to shift blame and responsibility for climate change onto individuals rather than corporations. Um, and on that very note, when it comes to things like Tesla, I think it's great that we have electric vehicles. I'm thinking about buying an electric motorcycle soon. I've been, I've been looking at one. I think that is the future, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a clean future because right. unless we can actually, I mean, if you're blowing the tops off mountains in West Virginia to get the coal out of them and, you know, thousands of West Virginians are, and Kentuckians are dying of black lung you know, to get this clean energy right. source that's going to run your electric vehicles. Well, then, you know, I mean, that's only a half step, maybe better than stripping the natural world for spare parts in the, the oil and gas industry. Right, right. And so I think you have to, uh, the, the vehicles themselves do do need to become cleaner. Um, and I think California is obviously taking a lot of steps. They're, they're banning um, diesel and, and, and petrol engines after 2030, I believe it is. Yeah, I think it's 2030. And I think a lot of companies are, like GM are, are really trying to get on board that uh, on the train that you know Tesla and others started. Right. Again, yeah. I mean, I've seen like I've seen multiple companies like GM's a great example of they're coming out with yeah. an entire electric vehicle line, like full from pickup right. trucks all the way down to sedans that they're yeah. rolling out. Um, yeah, and I think that's I think that's awesome. But again, if you're filling that with dirty coal electricity then you know i think we have to solve that before we can solve the electric vehicle problem right i've always right. been a big advocate of nuclear energy i obviously think that you know we should be shifting towards solar and wind um i just think i've always been of the opinion that nuclear energy is going to get us there a lot faster i agree, I agree with that completely yeah when you're talking about us being on the clock um in terms of climate change it just puts so many things into perspective and the problem is that nuclear energy has really the, the only problem facing it is a high degree of public mistrust, um, mm -hmm. which is based off of, um, frankly, frankly, Chernobyl, Fukushima. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. A couple of yeah. small, uh, yeah. Well, I don't want to say small cause I don't want to belittle what happened, but like right. very, very poorly maintained nuclear facilities that had very little regulation around them ended up exploding and, you know, killing and devastating the environment around it, which is, you should yeah. be scared of that. There should be things that are in place. But uh, I think that the gutting in a lot of ways of the nuclear energy here in the United States has been a very, very poor decision in terms of meeting our energy right. needs going forward. Um, Especially in a temporary sense, because like right. we do need to be investing in wind and solar, but we have to have something that can replace our current fossil fuel reliance. And um I mean, South Carolina is, as you know, probably a heavily nuclear-powered uh, region. Right. And I think, like, the percentage of nuclear energy that we use, I think it approaches, like, what the percentage that France uses. Um, so there are some regions of the country that are heavily investing in nuclear. It's just, it's kind of stalled out across the board. Yeah. Um, and that's for, that's for a number of reasons. Uh, part of it is it's a very expensive, it's a very expensive endeavor for a company to want to build a power plant right and um there was a loan guarantee program uh from the federal government for a while that basically said you know if the company defaults then you know we'll take care of it which allowed these companies to 
take that additional risk um, to be willing to build a power plant. And then people are concerned about the waste, but that's not, that's, that's not really an issue. I mean, we can, we can store that stuff in Yucca Mountain and then this one um, plant in New Mexico for like 10,000 years to come. So I don't, yeah. I don't really think that that's a huge issue. Um, and of course, U.S. United States regulatory standards. Man, I really should just be a lobbyist for like the nuclear regulatory commission. <laughs> That's what it sounds like, dude. You're selling me on it right now. <laughs> NRC, if you're if you're watching this uh, this Zoom, you can hire me. Yeah. So I mean, I think when it comes to when it comes to the waste, people in terms of just the nuclear project in general, you have to get people over images of Fukushima and images of Chernobyl. Right. Because it's just not how it works in the U.S. Like the only nuclear disaster that we had was the Three Mile Island incident. Mm -hmm. Nobody was hurt or injured. And they repopulated the island after several years. It was actually a success story for the fail-safe mechanisms that the Nuclear Reg Regulatory Commission put in place. And the Nuclear Regul uh, Regulatory Commission is the most efficient government agency and the most capable. Like I think the standards that they are held to they're like more than NASA and more than like the Department of Defense and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, it's they incredible. really do their job yeah. well. Well, I've got so I've got four or five buddies that all work out the Savannah Riverside complex, which is um, yeah. one of the larger nuclear facilities in the southeast. Uh, on the Savannah River and the amount of training that they have to go through the I mean it is a six to eight month training process as soon as they walk in the door and I mean it, they're not allowed to get near anything doesn't matter if they're just doing operations like doesn't matter if they're just doing payroll like everything has got to be like top to bottom you have to know exactly where you need to be at all times you're not allowed to have your right. cell phone on you hardly ever uh, you're walking in there at like eight o'clock in the morning seven o'clock in the morning and you're not leaving until eight or seven, seven or eight at night like it is very, very stringent. And I mean, like, that's how it has to be. You know, I mean, those are the people that are le literally keeping uh, within a hundred mile radius, everybody's safe. Um, right. But the amount of clean in uh, energy that you get out of any type of nuclear energy is, I mean, leaps and bounds better than what oil or natural gas or coal or any other fossil fuels yeah. give you as well. Um, so, and, and I do, I agree with you. I think a lot of it is PR. I think that nuclear energy over the past 30 to 40 years in the United States has been a PR disaster. Whereas you yeah. look at a place like Sweden or Denmark or, uh, you know, especially a lot of the Nordic countries where they've heavily invested in nuclear energy over the past 20 to 30 years. And they're, they're running, you know, the vast majority of, uh, well, I'd have to fact check that, but they're running a good portion of their energy off of nuclear, uh, and wind yeah. and solar as well. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it's one of those things that you have to get over the PR campaign, mm -hmm. but I also, I don't see, I think there's so much energy and so much incentive behind wind and solar now that I think people are going to keep going that route rather than energy. I think people think nuclear energy had its day and until we kind of master fusion, which I think is, I think that there's a lot of potential there. I, I think that research, I think within our lifetimes, we'll have nuclear fusion. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. But I mean, even fission is incredible. Um, it is. I, the, yeah, you can so, literally like that. You can hook up a U.S. Navy submarine to the New York City power grid and run it for months. Right. It's unbelievable. City. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I uh, I I was wondering if wind and solar was going to get a um, basically get a real bad rap after what went down in Texas over this past this past month because I think that there were a lot of people that were blaming wind and solar for what went down and what happened. 
And I was wondering if there's going to be a big kind of turn against wind and solar as a result of that. Um, because I mean, I can kind of see or understand, I mean, wind and solar are at time. The sun's not always going to be shining. The wind's not always going to be blowing. Right. And so, um, there's going to be needs by which to be able to store all of that energy when you have a surplus. And one of the big problems that they have in Texas is that they can't store it well because we literally don't have batteries big enough, right? Like you don't have the battery enough batteries to be able to store that much energy over long periods of time. Um, so I was wondering, and I was thinking about after all that stuff started going down with Texas and that was a cluster of a wide variety of different things, but, and all of a sudden everybody was a, was a a genius about the electrical power grids within Texas overnight. Right. (laughs) Everybody on Twitter was like, I know everything about Texas energy. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, I mean, you know, um, Greg Abbott made that comment about this is what a green new deal would look like when in Mm. reality, I think something like. 15% 15% of Texas's power grid is run off of wind and solar and the rest is natural gas. And it was actually the, the natural gas and, you know, oil kind of, it was a fossil fuel industry that really kind of broke in this scenario. Um, I mean, everything broke, but you know, it yeah, so my, the, the, my understanding the feelings were not an indictment of it, of wind, right. wind and solar. Yeah, my understanding of it, and I could be completely wrong because I'm not going to act like I'm some kind of genius about the Texas power grid. Um, but from a lot of the stuff that I'd read, it was that they, I think, for most of the time, tried to rely on wind and solar as much as possible, but they literally did not have, due to government subsidies, uh, enough uh, basically in place to be able to sustain the base load of energy needed through oil or natural gas. And so once the wind and solar you know, turbines went kind of bottom up and they froze a little bit, or the solar, uh, the wind froze up, they literally couldn't actually back everything up. And then, of course, you know, all the natural gas, everything ended up freezing over too, which was, you know, just the mix of the perfect storm. But yeah, well, and that really, I mean, this is the thing. It's like in South Carolina, every time that we have a storm, you know, we have to stay inside because our power lines go down. Well, you go up to the Northeast and they don't have above ground power lines. Right. They just bury it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Texas is not anticipating an ice storm every winter. And so they're not going to prepare for that sort of thing. I think it was a tragedy. Maybe some of it could be could have been avoidable, but in in general, I think it was just more of a failure of relief efforts than mm. you know. It was a it was a freak thing. It was kind of like it was kind of like yeah, Fukushima. I mean that that was a right. freak tsunami to drown the entire island. You know, I mean right, and cause all those failures for admittedly an older power plant that was not right. very well regulated. Um, but yeah. That's actually an interesting tie-in is the is the the kind of propaganda generated by the right wing regarding that incident because I think that that's, that's probably going to tie into some of the stuff we want to talk about later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was um, <laughs> yeah, we can definitely get into left first right because that's obviously why I have my podcast right. I want to that's that's my goal is to have people on with a lot of different a lot of different political views saying and, and thinking different things, but um, I I think. I can't not talk about the Texas power grid failure and get your take on what Ted Cruz and AOC, if you know about Ted Cruz going to Cancun, that was, uh, had to be one of the funniest and most ridiculous political stories that I've heard in a very long time. And, uh, that, that absolutely blew my mind, but AOC gets up and like, I, I don't agree with a lot of AOC's policy, right? I think she's incredibly intelligent. I think she's, you know, one of the smarter congresswomen, or at least if you don't like all our policies, at least a marketer of herself, she's very good at doing what she does. Uh, but yeah. you have to hand it to her. Like 
she got out and she was like, I'm going to raise what she ended up raising like five, almost $10 million. And then going yeah. down to Houston crushed it. I was like, that is yeah. exact opposite of what the Republicans needed right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It was, it was a terrible PR move. Um, mm. Of course, all of this is dumb because like it's pointless to just, you know, salivate over Ted Cruz flying down to Cancun and ignore like the devastating issues that are, that are going on in our country that, right. that need in many cases, bipartisan support. Um, and, and I always get, I get frustrated by things like the Ted Cruz story. I get frustrated by things like Meghan Markle um, and the Royal family, just because it's, it's such a distraction and it's, it uses up so much capital because it's, it just becomes meaningless culture war stuff. Right. Instead of like meaningful dialogue. So like yeah. it's cool that AOC pulled this stunt. Now AOC, I think is a is a is a very empathetic person, um, and I think that she, I mean, she's you know a card carrying member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She's very much um, you know on the side of the people, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So I, I imagine that was an endeavor undertaken out of the goodness of her heart, but it was also a very good PR opportunistic PR move for AOC and and other Democrats. Yeah, it was. And I think it's just, I see so much of that kind of tit for tat going on and right in the further partisanship of our politics, you know, meanwhile, um, 0.01% of the population is accumulating massive hordes of wealth and turning Mm -hmm. the country into a neoliberal hellscape that will never be (laughs) able to escape from. We've got to talk about that then. (laughs) We've got to talk about the neoliberal hellscape. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, um, and, and it was you kind of tied in a little bit with kind of the difficulty that we have in the United States with poverty and uh, the difficulty that we have with one in five uh, people going to bed hungry every single night, or children. I think you said children going to bed hungry every night. Um, and then you said some two of the reasons why were uh, for healthcare reasons, like not having a, a, a proper healthcare system and not having a solid social safety net. Um, what like what, what specific things do you think need to go? Are you in, are you in favor of the Medicare for all type thing? What or you know, basically healthcare plan, what type of social safety net do you think would be in place that would actually be able to help a lot of that one in five children going to bed hungry every night? Yeah. So I, I think what you're touching on here is a series of compounding issues. Uh, I just read a report yesterday that said that 78% of people who were hospitalized for COVID-19 were obese. Hmm. And, you know, we know that there's an obesity epidemic um, in the United States. And one of the reasons for that is the fact that it's, it's a lot easier. I mean, you did the, a Big Mac or a Whopper is the same price as a, as a red bell pepper at the grocery right. store. Right, And the way that our incentive structures work and the way that our, our lack of proper regulation on these massive um, food producers um, and agriculture companies results in flooding poor, you know, low-income areas with terrible dietary, I mean, just ter- terrible food that's making them obese. And we're actually right. now exporting this obesity epidemic to much of Central America. So that's a compounding issue because that's a public health issue, um, but it's also an agriculture issue. And then you talk about the fact that those people, once they do get sick, 
um, have to choose between, you know, buying a very expensive healthcare plan if they can even afford it and just going without and going right. without treatment. And you have a bunch in this, and this ties back into the minimum wage debate where you have a lot of people who they don't want to lose their job and they don't want to unionize in order to take on, you know, the interests of these big companies, because if they do lose their job, there's nothing to catch them. They lose their health insurance. You know, they, they lose their ability to pay rent and their wages right. are depressed, but because there's nothing for them to fall back on or very little for them to fall back on, it's, um, it's a gamble that they have to take. You know, if we had a functioning public health care system, um, then I think you would see a lot more people emboldened to stand up for labor rights and that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all these issues, they, they're, they're in tandem with each other and they compound each other. As for the specific policy proposals like Medicare for all, I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren has presented a plan that's doable. It's going to be very expensive, but right. I'm also very tired of, of having conversations with people who are incredibly reticent to do things like set up a social healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, and yet are completely unquestioning of, you know, trillion dollar defense budgets and the kinds of, the kinds of things that we like to prioritize in this, uh, in this economy, which is essentially large corporations buying off politicians and being rewarded by um, grants, you know, large contracts and um, policy changes. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, a perfect example of this is we just spent $1.7 trillion over the past, I think it's around 10 years developing the F-35 fighter jet. And um, the Department of Defense came out last week and was like, yeah, it's basically useless because between all the leaks um, that the Chinese and the Russians got from the project and the fact that they couldn't just get some of the technology to work the way it was supposed to, we've now spent $1.7 trillion on a fighter jet project that is useless. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that that is the same price tag, nearly the same price tag as the largest as the COVID-19 relief package, which is the, the, the largest, you know, federal stimulus that has occurred in our lifetimes. That's, that's astonishing. And yet yeah. I think a lot of people um, on the right and the left and by the left, well, okay. I mean, Republicans and Democrats, actual leftists are very critical of the military industrial complex and the fact that yeah. both parties seem very willing to aid and abet them. Well, and there's a portion um, of, there's actually a portion of not just the middle ground, but actually some Republicans that are starting to move towards that as well. Um, starting to, to not be a huge fan of the military industrial complex, but I guess, hold up before we go on, before we get into that, one thing that I was going to say, uh, going back and tying in a little bit to um, basically the large like defense budgets that we have compared to, you know, other, you know, we're spending all of our money maybe on defense as opposed to spending it in other places like healthcare. While I do agree with you hundred percent, our defense budget is absolutely through the roof. I, I, if I, if I'm stating my facts correctly, I believe that we are uh, above the next 20 nations below us in terms of the amount of money that we spend on our defense. 
However, when you look at the percentage of money that is spent on defense within the federal budget as a uh, as a percentage of the entirety of the United States budget that is spent every single year, it's really only about 13 to 15 percent every year. Um, now, in terms of the discretionary money, uh, the defense budget is much larger percentage of the discretionary money that's spent. I think that a lot of the reason why Republicans are uh, very reticent to wanting to include a health care package or, you know, a health care plan that would be government funded completely is because that would now be non-discretionary money. Right. So you already have 66 to 68 percent of the entirety of the congressional budget that's spent every single year on totally non-discretionary, whether it's Social Security, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, whether it's welfare, which welfare is a very small percentage of that. But um, you now throw in health care as well, and that becomes even larger. And then once you have health care right. out that is not funded by partially funded by employers by any stretch or uh, not funded by any of the citizens as well outside of through taxes, the government's on the hook for that. Right. Like there's there's right. no role in that back. And so a yeah. lot of the a lot of that, I think the Republican reticence to it is not people don't deserve health care. I think it's more of can it be done more efficiently by the free market? And if it can, um, then why wouldn't we do that as opposed to the government? I mean, I personally don't think that this is a problem that we should morally put in the realm of the free market to decide hmm. if you truly believe that we have a right to life in this country, then that means that we have a right to health, which means, I mean, I'm not really picky. Um, but I think that at least means a robust public option, if not, you know, a full government health care system, um, as it has been implemented in countries in most, you know, modern advanced democratic right, countries. Right. Well, we're, we're one of the few developed countries that doesn't have a universal health care system of some sort. Right. Right. And because of that, we spend twice as much per capita on um, on health care every year. Right. I mean, there is a way that we could do this if done efficiently that could save us money in the long term, but it's going to hurt a lot in the short term. Um, and again, we always, we never question, we never, we never seem to question the priorities of the, um, of the elite and the corporate class and their needs and the needs of wall yeah. street. And um, we seem to be, I think we, we play a lot more fast and loose with, loose with the needs of ordinary working people in this country um, because they're a much less powerful and much less influential block. And if you need proof of that, just look at where all these politicians go to work after their, their jobs are done. Well, do right. they do they become uh, steel steel workers? You know, <laughs> no, do they become farmers? Right. Well, Jimmy Jimmy Carter maybe, but right, right, uh, he's no, one of the few. No, they, yeah, they go to Wall Street. They go to large consulting firms. They go to lobbying organizations and then leverage all the relationships that they had while they were in government to get even more tax bonuses and uh, deregulation for their corporate partners. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think um, think that um, one of the difficulties that I see right now in terms of our current healthcare system, and I will openly admit that I'm not an expert on the United States healthcare system at this point. Like I, I try my best to do as much research. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I do my best to try and do as much research as I can around it. But from what I can tell, it looks like we've, and the United States does this better than I, I feel like anywhere else, but 
we have the perfect mix of like the worst of both worlds, right? Where we have like a a very small portion of uh, like Medicare and Medicaid uh, and government funded for the very, like the most impoverished if they, you know, if people have to have it. And then we have an incredibly robust and often subsidized, subsidized uh, pharmaceutical and healthcare industry that, you know, BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson, they're all getting big money from the government in order to be able to produce this COVID-19 vaccine. And they're the ones that are going to get paid out for it. Right. Like it's not going to be the government that gets kickbacks for that vaccine that just came out. Like it's going to be these companies. And so you're seeing a lot of large corporations that are getting money for their research and development in order to be able to produce and, you know, widely, widely hand out and create products that they'd be able to make a lot of money from. While at the same time, it's the taxpayers in a lot of ways that are kind of footing the bill for that. Because like you said, there's a bunch of lobbyists right now that are going every single day, marching up to Capitol Hill that are like, hey, you know, we need kickbacks for X, Y, and Z. And the congressmen are like, okay, that sounds good. You bought me some nice Wagyu steak. Uh, I really appreciate that bottle of scotch. Uh, Let me see what I can do when I get into, you know, when I get into the office today. And I I think that like, that's where it's difficult for me. It's like, we can't have this awkward middle ground, right? Like we either need to a have a completely free market, right? Where uh, there's going to be widespread competition. Uh, It is completely deregulated to the point where there's so much competition that competition is going to drive down price completely, which there's an argument, I guess, to be made that there's no way that that could happen. And then, or you need to have a completely government funded option um, where, you know, you, that is subsidized by the taxpayers and the government is basically regulating the prices completely. But then there's also the argument that that's incredibly inefficient because it's large government. Um, so it, it's it's tough because I do feel like we're at this awkward, awful middle ground, you know, where... <laughs> yeah, we're, we're doing the worst of both. I think I really agree with that. I mean, Obamacare was a travesty. It was completely picked mm-hmm. apart by the insurance companies to ensure that they got the best things possible. Um, right. And then delivered a win, you know, quote unquote, for the Democrats. And yes, there are more people on... In, there are more people insured now because of Obamacare than there were before it. But when I lost my job, I'm grateful to, you know, thanks Obama because... As a 25-year-old, I was able to still stay on my parents' health insurance for an additional year um, right. because of Obamacare. So, yeah, we're doing it terribly in both ways. And what we need to right. replace it with is, like you said, you know, either something where the government – I mean, there's, uh, there is no such thing as a, as, a, as a purely free market solution to this because markets are created and regulated by government and mm. – to indulge in this Randian fantasy that like, if we just got out of the way, then, you know, right. Companies wouldn't be predatory um, and emphasize profits over people. Then, you know, like I said, that's a Randian fantasy. Right. Um, so yeah. And, and, and the thing is, I do not think that I have those solutions. Um, you probably don't have those solutions either. I don't, I but do I think there are, there are movements and conversations that have to be, had about our priorities and i think yeah. that's something where i appreciate bernie sanders i appreciate elizabeth warren i appreciate alexandria ocasio cortez for moving that conversation you know honestly i would say to the left but i mean even the left in america is so far right that it's really just back towards the center hmm. um i mean ever since ever since bill clinton like the democratic party has just lurched so far from, to the right and the republicans have outpaced them by you know just going from kind of reaganism into 
whatever the tea party was and then just essentially embracing a kind of crypto fascist death cult mentality um well, we're definitely gonna have to talk about that so you're referring to trump specifically there uh trump is the symptom of it he's he's an important figure in it but um it's 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 bigger than that but i would say these these figures like bernie sanders and elizabeth warren you know aoc aoc made this point last year she said in a european country uh joe biden and i would not be in the same party right you know? right I mean, well AOC, there's I mean, multiple, bernie sanders, multiple parties yeah a aoc and bernie sanders are like mild social democrats by latin american standards or or european standards yeah, um, no, and I mean, the idea that they're seen as as too extreme, and we got to trust somebody like Michael Bloomberg or Joe Biden because right. they're not so radical. When I mean, if if you compare AOC and and Bernie's policies to anything coming out of the New Deal, it feels so tame. Um, mm. It's really interesting to go back to the New Deal era and listen to speeches given by the Republican and Democratic candidates, and and you. Like the Republican candidate who was going against Roosevelt was making promises about the things the government was going to do for people that would have made Bernie Sanders blush. Right. And then you think about the fact that this is the guy that got beat by the guy who is even farther left than him. Yeah. And it just shows well, you yeah. how, how much, you know, 70 years of kind of neoliberal policymaking has lurched the center so much farther to the right to where somebody says, Hey, maybe it would be a good idea for, you know, large amounts of our people to not die because they don't have health insurance is seen as a radical communist idea right. and, and portrayed so in the media and by the talking heads. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to actually put forth any type of universal health care idea as an idea. And he was a staunch progressive Republican. Um, right. you know, so it's, it is interesting how, and I do, so I agree with you on a couple things. First is that I think that the far left in the United States is not even close to as far left as the, the people that are on the left in Europe or central South American countries for sure. Right. I think that yeah. our crazy leftists in the United States, AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they are very left leaning, especially by United States standards. But you look into Germany or if you look in especially a Sweden or Denmark or anywhere in there, and they are a they are a toned down democratic socialist, right? Um, whereas yeah. I also agree with you that like especially the Republican Party, especially under Trump, is moving more uh, farther and farther right, but in a weird, like non-traditional conservative way. Uh, it really right. does seem like a lot of tr a lot of what Trump ushered in was a much more nationalistic, much more patriotic type of uh, republicanism that I really wouldn't even know that I, I don't. I'm not even sure that I would be able to call traditional conservatism within the United States, right? Um, because to me, traditional conservatism is you, you know fiscal responsibility. It oftentimes is heavily aligned with like Judeo-Christian uh, like moral framework is what they would tout, right? That's at least what they would say. Um, whereas I feel like Trump played to that a good bit, but Trump for sure didn't display that right in his actions. And Trump, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, pushed policies that was incredibly isolationist. It was not free markets, right? He pushed a lot of things that were very contrary to what the Republican party normally would have stood for, for the last 30 years. And yet he was embraced like wholeheartedly the Republican party sold for Trump completely. Right. Um, and it's interesting because 
it does seem like right now the the United States in a weird way is it is kind of splitting and going in opposite directions. Like the the left the the left is going farther left and the Republicans are going farther right, right? In the sense of like right. they're going in this weird Trumpian and era fashion. Like where do you see what do you see that coming back together? Like you mentioned earlier, like a need for bipartisan like work on a lot of the stuff that we have. How do you get that if you have both both parties going in opposite directions? There, there is a need for bipartisan um, work. Um, there is also no negotiating with the Republican Party these days. They are, I they feel are like so, there's a lot of people that would say the same about the Democrats. Uh, there would be, yeah. But I think, I mean, even the debates over this COVID bill, I think, demonstrate to a lot of people that the Democrats are far less unified um, than people would like to think. Oh, for sure. And there's a lot of internal opposition pulling at the seams. On one end, you have, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and Warren and their cohort. And then you have the kind of Joe Manchin, Blue Dog caucus Mm -hmm. pulling in the other direction. Um, Whereas, you know, with with several notable defections, you have a pretty a pretty unified kind of Trumpian block in the Republican Party, because um, what started with people being desperately afraid of of being primaried and losing support um, from right. Trump's voters turned into a kind of Machiavellian realization that if you play into the politics of fascist movements, it can, it can get you very far very quickly. Um, so when you say when people like, sorry, I was going to say, when you say fascist movement, so what specifically are you talking specifically about Trump? Are you talking about the Republican party as a whole? Like what, what do you mean by fascist movements? Yeah, so this is important. Obviously, this is a very loaded term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right, and that's why yeah, I have my, to ask. <laughs> right, as my brother reminded me last night, it's about one of the worst things that you can call somebody, um, at least in, in common parlance, uh, because people immediately think Nazi, you know, and that's about the worst in, uh, insult that you can call somebody. But properly understood, fascists don't necessarily have to have anything to do with Nazis. Um, right. Fascism more broadly is, I mean, so if we were going to define it, it's, 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 a, it's a famously very difficult thing to define because it involves the bringing together of a great many elements that mm-hmm. only when they're all assembled do they manifest in a, in a manner that is fascist. And so an important distinction is realizing that fascism is a form of politics. It's not a, it's not a form of government. So you can have stages of fascist movements. So when Ben Shapiro goes on uh, CNN and someone talks about fascist politics and he rolls his eyes and he says, if Trump was a fascist, do you think you'd be able to call him that on national television? Well, that's a red herring, but that's how a lot of people think because they, they, when they think about fascism, they immediately think Hugo Boss uniforms, concentration camps, marches, Nuremberg rallies, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, those are the, the final stages as the quintessence of what fascist movements become. So if you take a scholar like Robert Paxton in his book, the anatomy of fascism, he lists five stages of fascism. Um, the first being disillusionment with, you know, the breakdown of liberal governments and political gridlock, uh, manifesting in discussions of lost national vigor yep. and lost national identity. The second stage is rooting, 
where the fascist movement begins to sort of infiltrate the political discourse coming in from all sorts, all sides. And I mean, I would trace this uh, back to kind of a, uh, maybe like a Pat Buchanan or it, certainly like a Rush Limbaugh type. Um, I mean, when you, when you want to talk about 9-11, I think that, that, that starts the lurch really towards this kind of um, Christian nationalist identitarian coalition that ends up manifesting in the Trump movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at any stage, these movements can disappear and fall apart. But properly understood, fascism is the cult of a leader. It's a cult obsessed with national rebirth. And the idea is that the leader embodies the nation and he's the only one who can take on the characteristics of the nation and unify a broad-based popular movement coming from the right against leftist class consciousness and individualistic liberalism along with things like globalism, individualism, um, immigration, uh, homosexuality, mm-hmm. you know, perceived degeneracy, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when these things manifest, it is often in the figure of a national chief who's pretty much always male, except in, in some exceptions. Um, and this figure embodies the group's identity right. and embarks on this, this transformative task. Um, and it's in fascism is it's a form of authoritarianism. Yeah, and absolutely. Well, I mean, it's ultra-nationalism, yeah. like authoritarianism. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So as opposed to communist totalitarianism, though, it um, so t- communist totalitarianism is future-oriented. It's obsessed with this utopian myth of, you know, if you just you just give us three or four more years, we will we will deliver full communism to you. Right, you know, right. If you just give right. us some time. We just know, haven't gotten this... the perfect communism down yet, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, we have no question that in the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism, we will one day accomplish this goal. Right, Whereas right. fascism is obsessed with the past. It's obsessed mm-hmm. with a this idea of lost national identity, lost national vigor. And it, it, it harkens back to an earlier time where the country, the, the Volk, you know, the people were more pure, less sullied, less degenerate. And of course, these times are always fictional. I mean, if, if you're a student of history, you know that literally every period of time is shitty. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> because people are sinful people regardless of what era you're in. Just yeah, how it's going to exactly. be. Yeah. But it's it's a very compelling form of politics. Um, and, and another interesting thing about it is I, Paxton and... Umberto Eco and, and Jason Stanley and some other scholars of fascism always point out that fascisms always take on the national characteristics of whatever country they emerge in. So a German fascism would look very different from an American fascism. An American right. fascism would look very different from an Italian. Argentinian fashion, fascism would look different from both. Um, each one is going to be pulling on national motifs, traditions, and symbols that are distinct to that particular nation. So where that might uh, emerge in a strong kind of Aryan group identity in in Germany and mm-hmm. particularly make its targets the Jews, um, in Italy, that wasn't necessarily the case. In fact, there were a lot of Jews who supported Mussolini in the early stages and even participated in the March on Rome. 
And yeah. while there was lots of anti-Semitism among the fascists in Italy, it was never so explicitly anti-Semitic as the German movement was. And actually, right. Hitler ended up kind of exporting that in 1936 to the Italian fascists. Right. In the U.S., with with certain exceptions, the U.S. U, American fascists are, I would say, with with certain notable exceptions, not going to go down the anti-Semitism route as much. Part of this is because of our strong national association with Israel as a country. Um, but, you know, we have different boogeymen here. And I think whereas the ancient idea of the the enemy of the, the Volk uh, was this kind of subversive Jewish communist um, who wore different masks and appeared in different ways, mm-hmm. I would say it's now kind of your radical street agitator pro you know immigration illegal immigrant or black lives matter activists or antifa boogeyman type thing so i I don't think there's a specific uh ethnic identity attached to that um yeah so i feel like i'm all over the map here do you have any no no yeah yeah. so um to that or yeah so um i'm actually and i've talked about this actually a little bit on my podcast i've been um i'm reading right now rise and fall of the third reich um by william schreier when it basically goes through just details top to bottom, like Hitler's birth all the way through the end of the third Reich. Um, and fascism yeah. is obviously a huge topic that is, you know, in, an, I mean, the whole book is saturated with basically the details and the inner workings of how, how Hitler chose and was able to build up this, this gigantic fascist empire. Um, and much of it was of course exported out of Italy because Italy is where fascism really found its birth. And fascism in Italy, you know, Hitler went to Italy and was like, okay, I can see what you guys are doing here, but I'm going to take this back to Germany. I'm going to perfect it. And I think that in a lot of ways, the reason why people, when they, when they think fascist, they think the Nazi flag is because like Hitler, I mean, he perfected not fascism for what it was at the time. Um, he, and I think that, uh, the, the reason why I think it's really tough for me, I think in some ways to give a little bit of pushback on, on, I think maybe fascism, which I agree is a, is a right side of the aisle movement very much in the same way that communism would be from the left side of the far left side of the aisle. Um, the difficulty that I have uh, seeing fascism, I think maybe growing in the United States or, you know, Trump in some ways being a fascist type leader is uh, there isn't a certain level of authoritarianism that I think that you see from the vast majority of Trump supporters in the same way that you would see the authoritarianism that was present from very, very early on within the movement of Hitler or Benito Mussolini. So when you look through the early 30s, uh, Hitler had the plan written out long before he actually started to garner power within the Nazi party as to what he wanted to do in order to be able to accumulate uh, an incredible amount of power. And, you know, the whole reason why he went to jail is because he amassed a mob of supporters with a previous war general with him, and they decided to, to storm a town square to try and take that, that place over, right, in Bavaria. So he... Um, I don't see that nearly as much on the right side of the aisle outside of, and I think that you can maybe point to the Capitol riots on January 6th as like, oh, well, maybe this is an example of authoritarianism starting to happen on the right. But um, to me, that's more of, I think that Trump came in 
And I do agree with you, very, very nationalistic, patriotic. He wanted to pull upon the ideas of the past. But I think a lot of it was he, there are a lot of people in this country, especially towards middle America, that feel incredibly disenfranchised. And a lot of the disenfranchisement that they feel, um, they don't feel is, is being handled and taken care of in Washington in the way that it needs to be. And so the idea of someone coming in and saying, um, we, we want to be able to, to, to change up and using the exact same democratic process that we've always used, uh, but start to push some of, push some of the, uh, I, I, maybe the, well, I don't know the best way to put it is, uh, maybe some, the best way to push out people that are there that are not there in your best interest. We need to drain the swamp, right? Um, that's very, very enticing to a lot of people, right? And it doesn't seem yeah. like Trump is coming at it from an authoritarian perspective of if these people do not leave, we're going to force them out, right? Like you, you don't hear Trump saying that everybody grab your guns and we're going to kill all of the congressmen, Right. Uh, and, and maybe it's much more subtle than that, right? And it sounds like you're making the argument that these are the first steps towards that, right? Um, yeah. But I don't see the all-out, um, here is, the, here we're going to be authoritarian and we're going to push in towards that right now, if that makes sense. So this is an interesting critique because I find it rare that people do not identify Trump as authoritarian because I think a lot of people are in agreement that he is the most authoritarian figure to emerge from the right in recent years. Um, and I suppose that depends on how you de define that. I, authoritarianism is an aspect of fascism, right. but authoritarianism yeah. can also exist with, without fascism. Um, mm -hmm. So, for instance, a lot of scholars say that uh, Franco's Spain or Salazar's Portugal were not necessarily fascists because they were actually a more traditional alliance of elites and military figures who were just exercising authoritarian rule. There right. wasn't this kind of volkish identity and obsession with rebirth um, right. and the formation of this kind of unreal fantasy of what America was and what America could be that very much um, goes in tandem with the conspiratorial aspect of the right. Right. So I, I would say I do believe Trump is an authoritarian. I do think authoritarianism manifests differently and fascism manifests differently in the United States than it does in Germany. For instance, the yeah. United States has long been an incredibly individualistic nation. Hmm. And Germany was not. You know, Germany in this kind of Confucian manner emphasized this bulkish identity of the people um, and their destiny. Whereas we we idolize John Wayne. You know, right. and right. We, right. we think of, you know, it's like it's like Nixon said. He said in the nineteen in the nineteen 60s he said the choice is clear this is this is the party of do you want the party of john wayne or the party of jane fonda you know we mm -hmm. we obsess with this kind of manifest destiny rugged individualistic idea right. which is actually why i was i was amazed to see how similar some of the aesthetics of american fascism are to german fascism because you have kind of the, the, the matching hats and the, the kind of Nuremberg style rallies. Um, and that's actually kind of, I didn't, I wouldn't have expected. And I don't think figures like Paxton or, or Echo expected that to, to happen in the United States to resemble um, an American, uh, a German fashions, fascism like that. I think they thought it would manifest in a completely different way. See, 
See, um, I would I would say that, and I I would say, and I would think that historically Germany has been one of the more starkly individualistic cultures within Europe. Um, and I could be I could be completely wrong about that, but I think that even coming out of like Wilhelm II and you know the entirety of the regime that he had coming out of the late 1800s, um, and then starting in towards you know the the bit of democracy that they had um, after World War One. I think that you saw the large portion of Germany for the most part kind of sitting around together and looking at each other and being like, well, I've got to provide for my family because that's all that I can provide for. Um, but I, with that having been said, I, I do think that you're right in the sense of like both Germany and the United States, we still have a sense of, well, we're, we're, we're kind of, we got to come into this together a little bit, like if we have to, you know, um, where, I, you know, especially in the United States, we're starkly individualistic. Uh, most people don't even know who their neighbors are. And I think that in a lot of ways, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but that is kind of, the, at, I would think, kind of the opposite of what fascism would really want, right? Like, to me, that would be a huge uphill battle to climb if you wanted to have any sort of gigantic fascist movement within the United States because fascism in so many ways wants to be able to push this collective underneath this incredibly authoritarian figure. Um, and maybe my interpretation or understanding of how fascism kind of historically has worked is incorrect there, but I would think that in many ways individualism would be a detriment to fascism. And it's true. true. Authentic individualism is, is an antithetical to fascism. Yes. Right. But now you've, you've entered the very important aspect of fascism, which is cognitive dissonance. Hmm. It's the don't tread on me bumper sticker next to the blue lives matter right. flag. Like Blows. who do you think is going to be true? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who do you think is going to be treading on you? And, That's and, one of and, my favorite and, things I see. Yeah. Like cognitive dissonance is at the heart of every fascist movement because you, in one sense, you have, you're claiming to be individualistic and you're the rugged individual. And yet at the same time, you are clinging ever more closely to your group identity, which for hmm. Trump voters, um, and I'm, I have never said, and I never will say that every Trump voter is a fascist. I do not believe that. Right. But you have the majority of Trump voters are white, conservative, Protestant evangelicals, and increasingly Catholics, um, circling the wagons around this identity right. of white Protestant evangelicalism. Um, and it, it, it and the statistics are incredibly stark. Um, when you look at issues of race, policing, immigration, um, the death penalty, there is something special in all the wrong ways about specifically white evangelical Protestants in the US, as opposed to black evangelical Protestants or Latino Catholic who are, you know, maybe more culturally conservative, but they don't manifest that conservatism in, in these, these weird ways, which in many ways are called back to a kind of pre-civil rights era of politics. And as the further representation that minority groups have had uh, in government, in business, in media, the harsher this reaction among the specific large group of white evangelical Protestants in America has lurched further and further to the right and further and further into the arms of fascist uh, and fascist politics, which is why you have, you know, um, supposedly, supposedly Christian types um, falling into the lap of a 
you know, a serial philanderer um, who's lied, cheated, and sealed his way through his entire career, yeah. and who's well documented to be a complete fraud and a grifter. Uh, it's because it's it's about more than a Christian identity, and in many cases, it's about more than a white identity. But the matrix of the two of those creates this strange Christian nationalism, which manifests in things like the Jericho March and the attack on the Capitol, um, but also more subtly in this idea that that the people, the Volk, are besieged by the left and besieged by the forces of individualistic liberalism and degenerate homosexuality and the trans agenda and cultural Marxism, which, by the way, that term was invented by the Nazis. It was original cultural Bolshevism. Right. And it was that is true. Know, essentially, essentially a, way, a way of saying that you know, so I, I'm a liberal. I, I assume you're kind of a liberal or, or somewhere somewhere in the center. Um, but for a fascist, being a centrist or being a social democrat or being a liberal would be a mask for your true intentions, which are world Marxism or world Jewry or something like that, mm. um, which is very interesting. The, the conservative right in this country seems completely unable to distinguish between liberals and leftists who are oftentimes in fierce right. disagreement right with each other right. but it's all the same to them because oh well that's just a mask um and so they feel besieged by these forces their identity is shrinking and it can be real or imagined uh and i think the the fantastic nature of right-wing media and its ability to blow up into huge controversies um very minor culture war things and turn them into huge cultural issues is evidence of this um hmm. So yeah, that was kind of a tangent. Yeah, no. Uh, so what I was going to say, I think specifically around the the evangelical cultural aspect of this um, is there's a I think that there's a very large portion of the right side of the aisle that looks at uh, the United States historically, and they say right now there's more debauchery within the United States than there's ever been. Right. And they say uh, there's a growing movement away from what the principles of the Bible uh, would teach and would preach uh, and is being promoted and not just promoted, but in a lot of ways promulgated by the United States government. Uh, And that's that's what I think makes them worried. That's why they're concerned about. Um, the idea of their children growing up in a place where debauchery is not just, and when I say debauchery, I mean that in the sense of like, that is an all encompassing word that I'm using for whatever sexual sin or what, De- whatever decadence, else. Decadence, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, degeneracy. I, right, right. Some type of degeneracy where um, they are pulling away from and they're wanting to um, stop the push towards uh, whatever that may be. Right. Um, and I think that you see that actually in a, in a fairly large amount of societies where um, you have a, a, a conservative, a conservative right side of the aisle or a conservative movement within every single country that is a, a fiercely opposed by a, a left side or more progressive side of the aisle that almost always leans in towards some sort of degeneracy. And there needs to be the the push and pull of both, right? Um, because at, at the vast majority of the end of every single large empire that you've seen throughout world history, it is almost always marked by uh, a very, very large increase in some sort of degeneracy uh, from a wide gambit of especially sexual sin. 
And I think that when you see the evangelical Christians, especially on the right side of the aisle, when they're looking at and they're seeing, um, you know, homosexuality or the transgender movement or even a movement now to normalize pedophilia as well, which is gaining steam within a lot of very far left groups, um, that, that terrifies them, right? Uh, that terrifies a lot of Christian evangelicals because they're looking at that and they're saying, well, this isn't the America, right, that I grew up in. This isn't the America, this isn't what America should be and what it was at its founding, which we can, <laughs> I don't know that necessarily America was the moral Judeo-Christian framework that I think that a lot of people like to think it was. But No, um, it was a bunch of Enlightenment deists. Right, right, which blows my mind that... Set up- Right. Yeah. He specifically set up the world's first irreligious state. <laughs> right. Like explicitly. Um, right. I, I'm very, I'm curious about this idea. So, I mean, I, I monitor a lot of far left networks and I, I, I've never seen any sort of movement to normalize pedophilia on the left. Yeah. So when I say that, um, I'm, by normalize, I don't mean in the sense of everyone should be a pedophile. I mean it in the sense of uh, pedophilia should just be accepted as um, any other type of sexual kink or sexual, uh, I guess, uh, idea that you would want to have. Um as opposed to uh, a mental, uh, some sort of mental disorder, as defined what the DSM would define it as pedophilia as, um, which I have, I have, I have actually seen, and, and granted, it's obviously not a very large portion by any stretch of the imagination. I think that you'd you'd be hard pressed to find even many of the most hardened leftists to be like, yeah, pedophilia is a good thing. Let's go ahead and lean into that, right? But um, I think that that is what's oftentimes pushed on right right-leaning airwaves is that's becoming normalized that's, oh, I, that's I believe that right. yes because right. the right wants to believe that all the leftists are satanic communists who are coming for their young right so <laughs> i i have never seen i mean i've never seen this on the left in terms of a normalization of, of pedophilia like i think there's a lot of people who say that you know like pedophilia is it's something that should be should be given treatment you know like we shouldn't mm-hmm. just shoot pedophiles like you know have the people on the right want to do we should we should find treatment for them um, so if that's a normalization, then I, I don't know. I think that's just, you know, uh, a decent public health measure, but uh, the, 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 the rights obsession with pedophilia, I think is incredibly interesting. Um, it is because it you're is right. It does come across, it does come across on the airways quite a lot, especially right. in QAnon and QAnon is, is the perfect fascist conspiracy theory because it involves two um, two particular ideas, two ancient kind of conspiracies. The first is Jewish blood libel, which was the myth in Christian Europe that Jews were abducting Christian children and using them for sacrifices. Mm. Uh, and the second is the rape of white women in the American South. And this fiction, because it is a fiction, that there was just um, many instances of African-American men uh, raping white Southern women in the antebellum and in the postbellum uh, era. And we have very few instances and that being used as a justification for lynching. And we have very right. few incidents, instances of that ever happening. Whereas we have multiple records, you know, time and time again, we see the opposite, which is white women, white men taking advantage of their African-American slaves. Right. Well, I mean, you look um, at so the, the entirety the of the hemmings of Monticello and coming out of Jefferson's yeah. lineage. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. example. 
And, and the way that this combines itself in QAnon is you have the idea of sexual exploitation of, uh, of, uh, of innocence. And the white woman in the American South was the most innocent of figures. Hmm. Actually, most white supremacist ideologies everywhere in the world um, have used the justification of, you know, the immigrants are going to rape our women as a large justification right. for the things that they do. So you have that. So the, the sexual exploitation of innocence combined with this uh, this conspiracy to take our children. Hmm. And it manifests in this perfect fusion um, of QAnon. Of QAnon. Yeah, and QAnon is, is, is so, I, it's so appealing to people. It is bonkers. <sighs> it is bonkers. But if you work a day job and you're a bank teller and you just stay on Facebook all day and your life's not all that interesting, then the idea of joining this crusade to root out the Satanist pedophiles inside the government and yeah. your dear leader, yeah. Donald Trump, is going to right. bring in the military and lynch them all on Capitol right. Hill. Like that's, this is where I, I get confused about this, this idea of this movement not being authoritarian because when you have people shouting, hang Mike Pence right. outside of the U S Capitol right. building, like that to me is, I think the totally Trump movement fair. is incredibly anti-democratic. Yeah. It is incredibly authoritarian. And so, oftentimes the followers want to go even more than the leaders. They want to go right, even further. Right. So and that was what bond. I was going to say. There's this, yeah, so there's this bond between the leader and the people, which is reciprocal. Um, mm. And you saw this with Mussolini. You saw this with Hitler because it's it's a it's a it's a shared kind of mental illness that they have, where they live in this fantasy world and they construct this fantasy world around them. Like Adolf Hitler was so convinced because every time he went to a rally that you know how could the German people fail? You know we have this Volkish identity. We're on this great crusade. Right. And instead of looking at, you know, military plans for um, the invasion of France, he wanted to look at grand architectural sketches with Albert Speer, you know, about what new Berlin would look like after the war yeah. and after the, the thousand year Reich had, had been established. And in the same way you have Trump, you know, indulging in this fantasy along with 70 percent, 70 percent of Republican voters that the election was stolen. Because how could it be otherwise? Right. He told them all along that the election, the only way that he was going to lose is if the election was stolen. Was stolen, right. And I, so, so I, this, I agree with you. You get this construction of an alternate reality there. And right. I think and that lends itself towards this, like, when it all costs authoritarianism that I think hmm. over overcomes the instincts of constitutional conservatism, if that was ever really a thing. And I think it is. I know lots of good conservatives. I used to be a good conservative. But... Yeah. Yeah, the modern I, uh, conservative movement is anti-democratic. Yeah, so uh, one thing, so I, for me, I think that there has to be a bit of a distinction between um, authoritarianism and populism as a whole, because I, I do think that there are many facets, I think, to authoritarianism that kind of relies on what, like a big populist movement, you know? But I would think that uh, there, there's a lot to be said around uh, the mob mentality of everyone coming together and coming behind uh, uh, something that they all have a shared belief in or a, a, a like cause in, right? Um, right? But one thing that I feel that you you don't see, and going back to a little bit of what you talked about, is how sometimes the, the followers were almost outpacing the leader. Trump never literally said, 
for them to hang Mike Pence, right? So Trump never right. literally said, yeah. um, "We should you." I think that you guys should storm the Capitol and and try to you know absolutely pillage the entire place, right? Um, right. Uh, and that's not something that you necessarily see with Benito Mussolini or, or, or an Adolf Hitler or uh, maybe even down in somewhat. I'm a much less versed in like Argentinian type fascism or um, any other fascism, I think maybe in Central or South America. But uh, I think that Hitler and Mein Kampf outlaid exactly what his plan was, right? Like he hated Jewish people from the very beginning and wanted to use them as a scapegoat. Uh, Benito Mussolini yeah. uh, never had that same affinity for wanting to kill Jews. So you see that his people didn't want to kill Jews in nearly the same way that Hitler's Hitler's followers did. So like right. for me, I think one of the defining characteristics of uh, the establishment of and the pushing towards a fascist movement is the, the followers almost never outpace the leaders because the leaders are the ones that are displaying the vision they are the the tip. They're the they're the pinnacle of this hierarchy, and the entirety of the German population wanted to live up to what uh, not only what Hitler's the vision was, but also what Hitler was. Right, like the, it was appealing to them to be like their leader. And I, I guess you can yeah. make the argument that some of that is. Um, some of that is present maybe in Trump followers, right? But for the vast majority of the Trump followers that I know. Um, they're they're able to say like listen he's he's not the perfect leader that I would want but he's he's kind of upholding a lot of the stuff that I think needs to happen especially from a policy prescription wise within the United States so uh, I'm I'm going to vote for Trump before yeah. I vote for Biden right yeah and I think you, so you've touched on something really important here which is the accommodationism that is at the mm. heart of the success of every fascist movement because mm. fascist movements come and go all the time but they only achieve success when they're able to build a coalition with traditional conservatives, uh, clergy, business elites, and kind of corporate interest in a reaction, large landowners and that sort of thing against these, what they perceive as leftist class struggle and individualistic liberalism. So even in the case of Mussolini and Hitler, you have lots of people who think that they can control the outcome of this and they're right. like, no, we don't really like Hitler. Um, so it's like you have von Papen. He thinks that by giving Hitler the chancellery that he's going to essentially oh, right. we'll put him over to the chancellery. He'll be he'll get to do his performative thing. And he's not the real right. He's not going to he's going to yeah. be completely handcuffed. We're going to just leave him over there. Yeah. And not to play fast and loose with, you know, comparisons and metaphors. But in that story, I think you could say somebody like Mitch McConnell would be the von Papen in, in that in that instance, because. You know, he experiences three years of, oh, my God, we're getting everything that we want because this guy's voters are so energized. Yeah. And we have this broad based popular movement on the right who's supporting us. And then suddenly they completely lost control of it. And the traditional mm -hmm. conservatives, the good Republicans, you know, all these types who complain, well, we don't like Trump, but the conservative judges. Well, we don't like Trump, but economic policy. Well, we don't like Trump, but tax breaks, that sort of thing. It's the same logic that happened every every time fascist movements gained power. Uh, people who did not necessarily agree with the tactics or the rhetoric, but realized the advantages of allying with them, and then suddenly found that they lost control. Right. I've experienced this with a lot of my Republican friends who, whenever I would you know criticize Trump, they would be like, "Yeah, you know, man, I agree," and everything. And it really it, it took it took the fiction of the stolen election 
and the assault on the Capitol for them to realize just how mm. far they had compromised authentic conservatism right, in the right. service of fascist politics. Yeah, and I, I think that I think that you're right 100% when you say there's a lot of Republicans that saw what happened on January 6th, and they were like, um, that's a little bit too far for me. You know, like I, I yeah. can I can get on board with wanting to stick it to China, right? I can get on board yeah. with uh, wanting to make sure that we've got conservative justices, you know, and the Supreme Court. But uh, you know, wait a second it, it it looks like a lot of these people were very much incited by Donald Trump to to go yeah. and, and to and to riot there that day, and that that's not a good look, and I, I can't get on board with that, right? And so yeah. I there's this there's this part of me that in a lot of ways thinks that Trump's day in the sun is, is done in the sense of, I don't think that Donald Trump is ever going to win another presidency, right? I think that Donald Trump absolutely still has consolidated control of the Republican party without a shadow of a doubt, right? Um, And he's going to work very, very hard to make sure that people like Lisa Murkowski or Mitch McConnell, or uh, I mean, you name a Republican that has gone against him. He's going to make sure that they, they have a hard go of it. Right. And a lot of that is just because he's the Republican party will be on his terms right right oh absolutely um but I, I i also think though that mitch mcconnell has the power and has the support uh within the republican party to rebuke a lot of what's happening with trump right now and it will be incredibly painful for the republicans for the next four years to eight years but i do think that if there is no shedding of this Trump identity from the Republican party by the time 2024 rolls around. The Republicans are going to be shattered in, in a way that is going to be incredibly different, difficult for them to be able to win elections going forward, at least until a new rebirth of Republican party happens. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to agree with you, but they're planning to gerrymander the crap out of every single state that they have legislative power in. And they are introducing massive voting um, legislation, which is meant to disenfranchise as many uh, Latino and African-American voters as possible. Hmm. See, I, I, that's interesting. Yeah. So I, uh, I'll have to hear, I guess, a little bit more about th- why you think about that, because I, um, in a lot of ways, I, I haven't seen, I, I feel like I've, I've, I've read a whole lot of stuff on more left-leaning sites that have been like, uh, Republicans are trying to disenfranchise the entirety of the minority vote, right? In Georgia, right? We'll take Georgia for an example or whatever, you know, a, a lot of other states. I mean, there's something like over 250 different legislative oppose- proposals have been um, either set in motion or passed since the election on November and the beginning of November uh, right. to try and change some of the voting uh, laws within the wide gambit of different states, but primarily Republican states. Um, however, yeah. in a lot of the research that I've done, I've struggled to find specific instances or policy that Republicans have pushed in order to purposefully disenfranchise voters. So I'm kind of interested to see like kind of what specific things maybe that Republicans are doing in your opinion that are like purposefully going after black and Latino voters. So that, that's a, that's a really good question. And this, this goes back to a longstanding tactic ever since the Southern strategy and the shift of the Republican party to embracing kind of conservative whites in the South. Um, There's an excellent documentary on this on Netflix about um, voter suppression in Georgia and Stacey Abrams in that story. Um, It was filmed right before John Lewis passed away. And Mm -hmm. so he actually appears as a contributor in this. So 
specifically, if you want to get into pieces of legislation that are trying to restrict voter, um, the ability for people to vote, which are all, of course, couched in, well, we're just trying to make it safe. We're trying to make it more secure. And the mm -hmm. reason that's always given is widespread voter fraud, which would be compelling to introduce some of these measures if there was any evidence of widespread right. voter fraud ever. The Heritage Foundation did a massive study on this with the intention of revealing wide-scale right. voter fraud on a state and federal level, and they came up with nothing. I mean, right. I think well, I mean, we have like one of the 80, more secure cases. Right. Yeah, I think they found 86 cases of voter fraud, successful voter fraud in the past like 30 years. It was a complete failure from that standpoint, and that's about as, the most conservative organization that's doing that. Other right, nonpartisan right, right. organizations have found minuscule attempts. So like in the 26 election, there was only four people who successfully or who, who got, you know, basically successfully did voter fraud. All four of them were Republicans. <laughs> right. right. And, it, and yet <laughs> voter fraud and massive, massive voter fraud, it, that's always the, the reason that's used to introduce these mm -hmm. measures. So well, then why are they doing this? It's because it's a lot harder for low income African American and Latino communities to have things like a driver's license or two forms of federal or state identification. It is it is more based on voting patterns, it is more likely that you're going to have white conservative evangelicals showing up on election day. And so you're incentivized to um, disincentivize mail in balloting and mail in mm -hmm. voting because mm -hmm. you want to make it as difficult as possible for the people who don't vote the way that your voters do to be able to vote at all. And that's an ongoing, like it, I'm not, I'm not an expert in voting laws in this country. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert in voter suppression. Um, I, I'm certainly not an expert in voter fraud. I have posted a couple of graphics about it and essentially it's, it's, it's nothing in the United States. So it's not yeah. a justification for these laws. But yeah. I would say that um, th there is a conversation to be had about the legitimacy of some of these measures. It's just that in every case that they're introduced, in, in nearly every case that I've seen, it is with the express intention of we want to make it more difficult for people to vote. Hmm. The justification yeah. being voter fraud. Yeah, well, so I... I agree with you wholeheartedly in the fact that the United States is actually probably some of the least voter fraud uh, of one of any developed nation within the entire world. Um, our, our voter fraud is uh, incredibly low, but I, I think that the, one of the largest reasons why for that is because we have an incredibly decentralized voting system. And so the vast majority of the of our voting system is based upon a county to county or a state to state basis, as opposed to um, it being controlled from the top down, from the federal level down right. to the county. And that is, yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, a very federalist or a, a very you know Republican mantra, right? Where you want things to be controlled at the municipality level as much as possible in order to be able to decentralize the process and make it much more difficult for fraud to happen. And it's unfortunate because I think that you are seeing a lot of Republicans actually moving towards this idea of, and this was all propagated by Trump, but the idea that, um, you know, like we, we are, uh, there's a gigantic amount of election fraud. And as a result, we need to make it more difficult for people to vote. Um, whereas I think that the huge push that's, that's happening right now away from, especially like HR one, which was passed by the house last week, um, is trying to keep the federal government from stepping into and having their hand more in uh, a lot of what's happening on a state to state or county to county level within the voting systems. Um, 
and I also I have to I have to say I disagree that voter uh, that it is more difficult or that uh, black or Latino or minority voters can't get an ID. <laughs> I just I know if you're saying two forms of ID, there are very very few places I've found that require two forms of ID in order to be able to vote. But the idea that uh, black or brown minorities are unable to get voter IDs, I think, or, or not voter but federal IDs of any sort. Um, is definitely, uh, I don't know that I can totally, <laughs> totally get on board with that. Uh, I think that the vast majority of the black friends that I have all have IDs. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's, I mean, that's fine, but that's like, I mean, that's anecdotal. Um, mm, that's you know, in, 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 I mean, that's a, that's an anecdotal example. And that may very much be true in the, in the, the scenario that you're in, but, um, at a larger scale, it is an issue I, that, that might be, that might be something that would be better taken you know maybe after the podcast we can discuss that in depth and mm. circle back around it you yeah know, after we've yeah. looked at some statistics and stuff yeah that's otherwise totally i think fair. we might just be talking past each other on the voting thing right right that's totally fair because i i will say i'm also not extremely well versed in the vast majority of voting laws and stuff as well um it's yeah. something that i enjoy to read about but i'm not an expert on it by any stretch so yeah yeah. I'm not an expert on anything, so I, I yeah. probably try not to put my foot in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. I I, uh, I totally hear that. So uh, this is a little bit, a little bit, I guess, off topic, or honestly, I guess, a little bit of a something. Well, I guess tangentially related to what we were talking about earlier. But so, what exactly do you do? So you, I know that you work for FarmLink Project and stuff. What exactly do you do outside of that? Do you have any specific roles with other companies? Do you have a specific, I guess, maybe job title or whatever outside of FarmLink Project, or is that kind of like your sole gig? So FarmLink is where I'm putting the majority of my energy right now. Uh, I've kept up a freelancing. Um, and I started that basically after I lost my last job back in June. And literally the next week I was invited on board. Um, and I've been doing that since. And that's taken out the majority of my time. But I've also had kind of a creative freelancing business on the side um, gotcha. for, I guess, four or five years now. And that's everything from photography, modeling, shoot styling, uh, retail photography, graphic design, text copy. Gotcha. It's basically whatever people need. But I, I'm terrible at advertising it. I, <laughs> I never <laughs> advertise it. And I tend to just do word of mouth. Um, yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, even, I didn't even, even know. All that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not great at self-promotion. I'll admit it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I had no idea that you freelance on the side. So, uh, yeah. That, 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 that would make sense then. I, uh, the only reason yeah. why I asked that is cause I, you know, I know that you said that you were moving out to California. I didn't know if you were trying to get into or put, I know that you've done some modeling and some stuff in the past, but I didn't know if you were trying to get into acting or any sort in any sort, even out to LA. No, I mean, I, I kind of hate Hollywood and never really want to be a part of it. Um, Oh, gotcha. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that that's really in my future. I mean, I like, who knows? It might be fun. Um, my roommate yeah. is an actor and I think she really wants me to try out for some stuff. And if I like it, then maybe I'll do it. Yeah. Um, I've never considered that to be a particularly meaningful career path for me. Um, hmm. yeah. So it would be tough to I like this place because think... the weather's nice and it's a, it's a new city with a lot of opportunities. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's totally fair. I've never personally have been to California. Um, but I have heard from so many people that it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. So, um, that is, I think we might go ahead and probably wrap it up there. Um, if that's all right with you. Yeah, man. This is great. 
Yeah, I really appreciate having you on. Honestly, we had I had a great time. Um, I'm sure that you and I will probably have many more conversations also offline, uh, talking a little bit more too. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of your insight. And honestly, I, I do have, being based out of South Carolina, I do probably have a bit more of a conservative uh, listenership. And so uh, I think that there's a lot of stuff that um, I think that a lot of, you know, more my more conservative listeners, I think can maybe glean a lot from and, and learn a lot from uh, from a lot of stuff that you've said. So I, I really appreciate a lot of your insight here for sure. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's one thing that I really try and do a lot of is I was raised a conservative. My family was involved with mm. Republican politics. I was on the Joe Wilson campaign when I was like 10. I was on the Marco Rubio campaign for president, even into my 20s. I think I was like 20 or 21. Um, of course, this is all kind of pre-Trump, uh, but that was certainly the value set, you know, that we we're given, I think, is like people growing up in the American South, you know, the yeah. default is sort of conservative evangelical. And yeah, I've I've had lots of productive and unproductive conversations with conservative friends about these things. Um, yeah. And I'm very slow, you know, and I think it's interesting because people are like, well, you're talking about people being fascist and stuff. Isn't that kind of extreme? I really don't think that your average conservative voter is a fascist. Right. I think they've made a, I think they've made unwittingly a Faustian bargain with a fascist movement, but I think that's a different thing from being like a, they're not yeah. true believers, if that makes sense. Uh, and a lot yeah. of them have good values and there's, there's certain conservative issues that I'm, um, in support of like i i am i am not for unrestricted abortions i am very pro-gun i'm very pro-second mm -hmm. amendment and that often yep. puts me at odds with liberal friends um right but i find if right. you go far enough left you find a lot of leftists who are very pro-gun as well right which um, is so weird to me it's so weird well i mean here's <laughs> the, the way that i see it you can't both distrust the police and distrust guns like you right. choose. <laughs> yeah. You got to pick um, one or the other. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like, I think the African American community has understood this for a long time. Um, they tend to not be hugely in favor of very restrictive gun control because right. uh, they, they don't really trust policing in America. Right. Right. Um, right. You know, and I think we've seen that demonstrated time and time again. I mean, I, I'm a, so I'm a, I'm a registered concealed weapons um, holder. Mm -hmm. And I, when I took my, class it was after the events in june after the black lives matter movement every person in my cwp class was african-american and or a liberal hmm. so i think when thinking that second amendment activism is, is a monolith i think is um not the case i was not discouraged true. to see well no well i mean like the the, thing, the bill that passed the house today i think it's fine it's just like mandating you know, more extensive background checks about online sales and gun and gun shows, which is right. probably warranted. Um, I don't find that super controversial. I don't think it's something that I'll waste my activism on. Right. But in general, I would probably depart from a lot of kind of polite liberals on the issue of guns hmm. and other issues. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very like much the same way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. So um, where can my listeners find you? Oh, Lord. Uh, well, I'm thinking about deleting Twitter, so don't go there. Uh, but you can find me on Instagram. It's at Charles McBride, spelled with a Y, not an I. And then you can find me on LinkedIn if you want. And then the organization I work for is at FarmLink Project on Instagram. Okay. Awesome. 
That works. I appreciate it a ton. Honestly, I enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure we could maybe at some point in the future also have you on again because uh, uh, yeah, we really had a bunch of fun talking tonight for sure. Good deal. Well, next time I roll through South Carolina, we'll have to grab a beer if we can do yeah. that oh, <laughs> in, in for the COVID sure. era. <laughs> well, uh, with all the uh, vaccinations and the quote herd immunity that we're going to be getting here soon, I'm sure we're going to be able, we're going to be fine. Everything's open up in South Carolina. You know, we're a bunch of Republicans. We don't believe in COVID. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. We never really even <laughs> shut down, which is why Greenville County keeps getting right. into the front page of the New York Times. Right, right, right. <laughs> all right, man. Well, I appreciate it a ton. Uh, we will go ahead and uh, knock it off there. All right, sounds good, my friend.